Good evening, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading the sermon scripture passage for tonight. This evening, we'll be reading from Psalm 173. So I invite you to turn, I'm sorry, 137. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Sorry, don't want to get us uh, on the wrong Psalm. 137. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can grab one of the blue Bibles in the back of the pew in front of you, and we invite you to keep that as our gift to you. Um, So once again, we are reading from Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is God's word. can see why Betsy wished that was Psalm 123. (laughs) That took a lot of boldness to read. Thank you for that. Uh, Well, good evening. It's great to be with you guys. For those of you who don't know me, if you're new, a warm welcome to you, regardless of what your spiritual background is. Uh, My name is Steve, one of the pastors here, and this is our final sermon in the Psalms for the summer, and then we're going to move into the book of Hebrews in the fall, so looking forward to that. So, uh, Psalm 137, it ends on a disturbing note, and it's one of those Psalms, you know, you're doing your morning devotion, and you read that, and you're like, hmm, why don't I go to the New Testament this morning, right? Or if maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, or you know someone who has this view, uh, sometimes you read things in the Bible and you may think to yourself, you know, sure, the scriptures have lots of things to say about forgiveness and love, but there's also a lot of stuff about violence, you know, so why would somebody believe the entire Bible when it has lines like you just heard read? And so uh, here's why we're doing this psalm today. Um, It would be a disservice to you guys to not cover One of the imprecatory psalms, so an imprecatory psalm is where you specifically pray for evil or misfortune to come down on somebody. There's seven of them, seven main ones in the psalms, so if you want to write them down uh, for future reference, there's psalms uh, 35, 59, 69, 70, uh, 109, 137, and 140. Um, So you can can look at those later. And so, you know, we want to equip you guys on not only, you know, how do you make sense of it, but more importantly, all of the scriptures reveal to us the character and nature of God. And so if we ignore certain parts of scripture because they make us uncomfortable, then we become ignorant about the God who pursues us and pursues reconciliation with us. And so um, as we look at through this, as we look through this passage and see, you know, what does it teach us about God and how His heart works, and what does it teach us about ourselves? Uh, let's ask these two questions that I think come to mind to any reader as they read this psalm. So first, why is this in the Bible? That's the first question. And then number two, should we pray like this? So you know, why is this in the Bible? Why is this psalm in the Bible, especially those final two verses, eight and nine? And then should we pray like this? Because the psalms are supposed to be a model. 
uh, to us for prayer, right? So first number one, why is this in the Bible? Uh, so let, let's first go through the context just because just like any passage in Scripture, you want to be clear of the context, and that's no less true for imprecatory psalms. You always want to know what the context is. So let's start in verse 1. Uh, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our ter- tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So we're immediately given the geographical and the historical context of what's going on. Uh, we know the author's in Babylon. So this must have taken place between 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came in, tore apart Israel, carried off the exiles uh, into Babylon, but before 539 B.C. when the Persians took over Babylon and uh, gave a decree for the Israelites to be able to return back to their homeland. So somewhere between 586, 539 B.C. in Babylon. So these are real people, real time and place. The Bible isn't metaphor or allegory or Aesop's fable. Like, this really happened. So that's where they are, and we see, even in the first verse, well, we see two of the three. In the first verse, we see their pain is threefold. And we see the first two reasons in verse one. So, um, by the waters of Babylon, so they're not home. They've been yanked out of their homeland. That's painful. And then number two, when we remembered Zion. So they're remembering not just Jerusalem in general, but Zion was where the Temple Mount was in particular. So what they're saying is, it's not just that we're not home, but we're not able to worship, you know, where they experience a very unique and intensified form of fellowship with God, like we're doing now. I mean, remember back during COVID, I know for a lot of you guys, it was really hard when we weren't able to meet, and that was from the comforts of our living room, right? But here, they're in Babylon, in exile, and they can't even go to worship. So their pain is, we see two reasons there, and what else does he say? So in verse 2, on the willows there, we hung up our lyres. So he was probably a worship leader or a part of the worship team uh, of some kind. And, you know, how can you sing when you feel like there's nothing to be happy about? So they just hang up their instruments on the trees. And then verse 3, For there are captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So if it's not bad enough already, they have their captors and tormentors mocking them. You say, oh, yes, remember that God who told you that he would give you a home- homeland and never leave you or forsake you? Uh, that God who said he was so powerful, but yet we destroyed his temple. Yeah, why don't you sing a song? Sing a song about how, how powerful and, and loyal that God is to you. Okay, that'd be as embarrassing as it would be infuriating. Verse 4 through 6. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So hear what he's saying, you know, basically, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy there at the end? What he's saying is, no, I'm not going to sing a song because what the Babylonians want me to do is they want to appropriate God's songs for their own purposes. And so I'm going to remain fiercely loyal to God by, you know, I'm not going to be a, a court jester for these people by singing one, of, singing one of the songs about my God for them. Verse 7, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. So as the Babylonians came in, left no stone unturned, just wrecked everything. The Edomites, they were neighbors of Israel. They were also cousins of the Israelites. They were descendants of Esau. They're there jeering and mocking as the Babylonians are coming in and crushing everything. And we're okay. Like at this point, verses 1 through 7, we're okay so far. You know, until you get to verse 8 and 9. 
O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. And so now we see the third reason for the psalmist's pain. It's not just that he's away from his homeland. It's not just that he can no longer go to to the temple or to church to worship. It's that there is a raw wound here from what happened to his kids and the children of those he loved. That's why he said, blessed shall be he who repays you for what you have done to us. So this is something that the Babylonians did to them. And what was common practice at the time is invading nation comes in, and as they, you know, break through the city walls, they run in and they find mothers with babes in arms, yank them out of their arms and grab the children by the feet and dash them against walls and rocks. And, I mean, this was a way to, I mean, not only traumatize your victim into submission, but also to ensure that the offspring of your enemy don't grow up and become big and then fight you back. And so there were, like, this is, this is fresh in his heart and he's crying out now for the same suffering that was inflicted on him and his people to be inflicted upon his perpetrators. And so as we look at this, we ask, you know, this, is, this seems gratuitous. Why is it in the Bible? And we see at minimum two reasons why it's in the scriptures. The first is, as you can tell by the language, I mean, this psalmist here is in searing pain, white-hot pain. And so by God including this in the scriptures, what God is communicating to you is he cares deeply if you're in pain. Like, note the earthy realism of this passage. Okay, you know, verse 1, we sat down and wept the physical tears that are going down their faces. The, the physical hanging of their physical instruments, their, their captors in bodily form taunting them remembering their very real children who were murdered in front of their eyes. And so one of the reasons why God places this in the scriptures, along with, you know, why he incarnated himself, among other things, is he's saying, when I invite you into a relationship with me, I don't, even, I don't invite you into some, like, super spiritual existence where I'm not concerned with the real stuff that's going on in your real world. You know, I think sometimes we think of our relationship with God, it just helps us with the spirit. Okay, that's great that I'm forgiven. That's great that I have a new heaven, new earth coming. But like, I have these needs now. I have this pain now. I have this grief now. And God's saying, I see you and I care about the real stuff that's going on. So we have a God who sees us and cares for us in our pain. And then relatedly, God cares about the pains of others and the pain of people you know. Uh, One commentator writing on this passage said, one of the reasons why the psalm is in here is so that we don't, A, turn away from the raw wounds that other people are feeling, and B, so that we don't develop a comfortable view of human wickedness. I think especially in the the West, where many of us have lived pretty comfortable lives, we, we need to be reminded, not in a guilt trip way, but just there's a lot of pain and suffering in the world, and human wickedness is a real thing. And as those who've been reconciled to God and, and given vertical forgiveness, you know, between us and the Lord, he invites us not just into a personal relationship with him, but he brings us into a new kingdom. Whereas a community now, we get to display God's care for justice and for those who are in pain. And so as an application here, I mean, you guys do a phenomenal job caring for one another in this church body. 
You've done such an amazing job caring for me as one of your pastors. And I know you guys care about, all of you care about the real hurt that's going on in the world. And so uh, just an encouragement to you guys, especially as, you know, Lori, our Director of Mercy, she's been uh, sending out a number of emails over the past month or two of opportunities to care for others who are in pain. So if you're wondering, you know, like, what, what can I do? Just a very, I mean, as one example, very immediate and readily available opportunity is the number of Afghan refugees who are here. And there's a lot of organizations who are coming alongside them to help them. And, um, you know, y'all just, at least if you're on our email list, you got an email a week or two ago about how you can connect and help. And so if, if you didn't get a chance to reply to that, you can still respond and say, hey, you know, I missed that point of connection. Are there any other, you know, because there are other opportunities coming down the pipeline where we, we can get involved to care for those who have been displaced and care for the needs of others as well. Okay, so that's, that's one of the, the main reasons why this is in the scriptures. God cares about your pain and mine, but, and he also cares about the pain of others and wants us to as well as, the, as those in his kingdom. And so next we ask, okay, you know, so it's easy for me to read Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and pray that. But should I pray something like, blessed shall he be who repays you what you have done to me? And so should we? Should we pray like this? And the answer is yes, we should. And no, we should not. <laughs> okay, and, and so here's why. So hopefully you'll, you'll see what we mean as we go through this. So yes, we should. So we can learn from the psalmist prayer. And we see two points of application we can learn. What, what's the first thing that we learn? The first thing that he does that we should do too is he takes his lament and his pain to the Lord. Notice verse 7, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites. So he's not saying, I'm going to go on this, I'm going to become a personal vigilante and run out and kill other people's children. No, when he says, remember, O Lord, he's saying, Lord, I'm calling upon your character because you are the only one who has the wisdom and the right to execute justice. I mean, my motives and even how I'm going to try to go about doing it aren't going to be impeccable. And so, Lord, I want you to act according to your character. And so he's taking his raw pain to God. And this is so key because you read it and you think, you know, as you, we're hearing it right during the scripture, and you're probably thinking, man, this guy needs a therapist. But the power of what he's doing is as he's venting his honest rage to God, one, he, he doesn't let it just remain within so it doesn't poison him because he doesn't vent it. But two, by bringing it to God, he's actually limiting his anger because now he's giving it to the only one who's going to judge justly. So by saying this, he's, it doesn't look like it at first glance, but he's actually limiting his anger. And so he doesn't contribute to the spirals of, of violence uh, that we see in our culture. And so just a, a question for you here is, I mean, do you, do you take your anger to the Lord? There's, I mean, there, there's, humankind has always, have, we've always been angry, but, you know, it's just more visible now. There, there's a lot of rage in our culture, and it's most obvious when you go on Twitter, when you go on social media, you see it. But, I mean, for every person you see yelling on social media, there's many more people who aren't posting, who are simmering in rage, Underneath, I mean, it drives nearly everything they do. And I mean, so for, for you, and maybe some of you here are thinking, I'm not angry. I'm not an angry person. <laughs> but I encourage you to do some real work with the Lord. I mean, maybe it's, 
Maybe it doesn't feel like this, but maybe, maybe you're frustrated with God at something he has allowed or something he hasn't given you. Maybe it's some loss you've experienced. Maybe it's some longing that you have. And especially if you come from a culture or a circle where, you know, it's frowned upon to express anger, like it can feel yucky to do it because no one looks, very few people look attractive when they're angry. But the beautiful thing about Jesus, you know, is in our call to worship today, you know, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Heavy laden doesn't just mean with your depression and sadness, although it does mean that, but also with your anger. So if you just go to Jesus and you tell him maybe ugly things that you're feeling or thinking, or sometimes this, this was happening with me this week, not to scare you, but sometimes as you get praying, you realize that there's stuff in there that you didn't even realize it was there. But Jesus, instead of, you know, pausing or backing away like a human being may do, he actually moves toward you in it and shoulders it with you. So take your, your real stuff to the Lord. And then number two, what's the other thing we can emulate in addition to, you know, taking it to the Lord is we see here that there's a, there's a concern for justice. Okay, so the psalmist is, just, is he's just simply crying out for, for justice to be done, for the victims to be cared for, and for the abusers to be given their due. And so for you, I mean, there are a number of things here, but as one example, um, I mean, as you think about the wrongs that are in the world, it, it's okay if certain things anger you, because it shouldn't just bother you, but anger you that so many families have either been tortured, murdered, or displaced from their homes in Afghanistan. It should anger you that millions of human beings are trafficked for sex, and many of them used to fuel the pornographic industry. It should anger you that many people are ridiculed or not given opportunities or physically hurt because of the color of their skin or their religious beliefs or their gender. That should anger you, but then instead of, you know, just letting it spile into a rage that's unchecked, take it to the Lord. Because often when we hear about things happening, that what we want to do, right, is just one, just keep reading on social media. Uh, and that's a way of fueling our rage, even if we don't post anything. Uh, or we think, which is right, by the way, to, you know, where can I send a check? Like, that is good, right? Like, we should seek to meet the physical needs that are happening. But I think if we're honest, um, yes, when there are opportunities, meet physical needs, send a check. But if you're honest, isn't sometimes taking five minutes to write a check easier than the daily labor of regularly, regularly interceding for folks who've received injustice? I mean, praying regularly for justice is a, it's a hard thing to do. And one of the greatest lies of the devil is that when you pray for justice, God won't really do anything because that's the really real stuff. Right? But when we see the pages of the scriptures howling with the cries of the oppressed, that's God telling us over and over, when, when you intercede on behalf of others for me, I do act. Certainly in this life and absolutely in the next. Okay, so we can learn these things from the psalmist, bringing our, our anger or our frustration to God, and then also have, having a concern for, for justice in our prayers. Please, please don't read this through a political lens. Okay, I'm just trying to, to follow the passage of Scripture here. Just caring about those who are hurting. Okay, so that's what we should do. But also, we should 
not pray like this. And here's the main reason why we should not pray like this. Like specifically calling down evil and misfortune on somebody else. And that's because, so the psalmist here, like he's doing everything he can with what he knows about the world to cry out to God for justice. But something really important happened between when the psalmist penned this psalm and when we live today. Something really big or someone really important happened. And if you go to Luke chapter 19, what you see is when Jesus rides into Jerusalem right after the triumphal entry on the donkey, beginning in verse 41, Luke chapter 19, it says, when Jesus drew near to the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, speaking to Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He's talking about their need for Christ to redeem them. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will surround you and hem you in on every side and dash you to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. And what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting Psalm 139. That when he says, uh, and t- uh, maybe in your translation, ESV says tear you down. It's also the word for dash or lay waste. It's the only place in the New Testament this is used. And he's specifically using the two eyewitness references from Psalm 137. The children being slaughtered and every stone being laid to waste, which we see in verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 137. And what he's doing is foretelling the sack of Jerusalem that's going to happen in 70 AD by Rome. So he's saying, this is what happened in Psalm 137. It's going to happen to you, but see what he's doing. He's weeping. Like, he doesn't want it to happen to them. And what's striking is, like, I think you all know what happens when Jesus goes into Jerusalem. So the people that he's weeping for, the people that he wants so badly to repent and to come into his kingdom by free grace are the same people that when he enters that city, they're going to mock him, whip him, you know, send him through the most prejudiced and biased trial the world has ever seen and crucify him. And yet what he does is he goes to the cross until his dying breath saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so, you know, what he, what I think most of us would have done, if we know it was coming, you know, we would have said, you know, just you wait, you know, wait another, you know, 30, 40 years and your children are going to get dashed. Your city is going to get laid to ruin. But no, he's crying for them. And, you know, so you ask, does Jesus not care about justice when he's up there on the cross just saying, Father, forgive them? He absolutely cares about justice. And yet he cares more about mercy. Because the wonder of the cross is by staying there instead of smiting his enemies. What he's doing is he's opening a door for any who will turn to him so that they can receive mercy and judgment instead falls on him. And so because God is just and he does care about justice, judgment is coming for every single human being, you know, for living selfish lives instead of others, for not giving honor and glory and living for the Lord who's given us everything. And so we have a choice. Either a very just sentence will fall on us for how we've lived or it will fall on Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus says, instead of making you pay the debt, I'll pay it. And so in light of this, since we live on the other side of Jesus, what does this mean in how we think about being wronged on a minor scale or a major scale and other injustices in the world is, it means we are called to care about justice, see 
earlier point, but we're actually called to move beyond justice into also caring about love and willing the good and the healing of wrongdoers. This doesn't mean we sweep sin under the rug or, or sweep wrongdoing under the, the rug, turn a blind eye to it. No, justice should be done, but then we go beyond that to actually will the good, even of those who are perpetrators, because of what we've first received and witnessed love and justice coming together on the cross of Christ. And this is something that's hard to get, especially in a culture that uh, doesn't have much of a category for love and justice, compassion and justice. You know, there's a great concern for justice in our culture, which is good. I mean, that's the image of God in you and other people, whether you're a believer or not. But often what you see, right, is it's just justice. I need to give this person their due and then leave them, silence them, whatever, and then move on to the next person. Instead of actually, you know, if a, once a just sentence has been passed, how now can they be restored? How can they be forgiven? How can they be shown compassion? And so what are some applications as we think about this is those in the kingdom of Jesus called to A, care about justice, but then to move beyond that into love and wishing for healing. A few things. Um, first is we should always read scripture in light of scripture. And so if you remember last week in Psalm 139, just two chapters after this, David is calling for justice to be done on others. And then right after that, unbelievably, he says, Lord, search me and know my heart. You know, try me and know any offensive thoughts in me. And so what David's saying there is, I care about rooting out evil regardless of the location. So whether it's in other people or in myself. And I know there's evil in me too. And so God, I want you to deal with it. And when you pray like that to the Lord, if you've been wronged or you're witnessing, you know, someone else who's been wronged, you have to pray that first. You know, search me, O oh God, and know my thoughts. Because otherwise, when you, mo- when you move out to do justice or to forgive, there's always going to be something in there, a spirit of, now it's more about vindictiveness and vengeance. Right? Romans 12 says, you know, don't repay evil for evil. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And B, the only way you can forgive is by not feeling morally superior to somebody. Like, if you're withholding forgiveness from somebody now, the only way you can be doing that is if you actually feel, I'm not capable of what that person did to me. But when you, when you see the offense and the glory of the cross, and you, you allow God to search, you actually recognize it's only by the mercy of God that you are who you are. So that's the first thing. You know, we, we need to check ourselves anytime there's been a wrongdoing, either toward ourselves and others. Um... And then, I, I think another application, uh, and this is just something that's been on my heart, is, you know, as we've seen a lot of stuff over the past year or two, uh, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of comments online in, in the news, social media, and so forth. One of the most disturbing and sad things about seeing the things that people who profess Christ are writing, uh, you know, especially when it comes to really sensitive issues, um, you know, who we vote for. Um, how do we reckon with racial injustice in our nation, abortion laws, and so forth? I think one of the biggest concerns hasn't been that believers have opinions, but it's been how those opinions have been voiced and communicated. Because if we believe that we've first been extended mercy by Christ, then it should be so clear, it should be so clear to, if you're posting something online, or if you're talking to someone who disagrees with you, or if you're talking to you know, your tribe, the people who agree with you, and you're talking about, you know, those people, those people, 
that even if you disagree with them, you honor them as image bearers, right? Made in the image of God and recognize that you may have something to learn from them, uh, that you're there not just to dialogue to win, but to learn. There should be no room for snark or posting sarcastic memes about the other side. And so here, here what I'm saying with the scriptures, it's not that we don't care, right? Because there are really serious issues taking place, but if we go back, like, what does it mean to live in light of the gospel? And it, at minimum, it means to approach these conversations with a spirit of humility, right? And that we're recipients of grace as well. And I can't tell this is landing. I hope it's okay. Um, it's heavy. Uh, and finally, number three, um, you know, especially when we talk about topics of being wronged, forgiveness, reconciliation, uh, it's messy and particularly messy in more significant cases of wrongs. And uh, in my story, I, I haven't been the victim of something particularly severe or significant. And so I can't speak from experience, uh, but so I want to do just in closing is maybe this is relevant to you or somebody that you care about. You know, how does, is Christ anything more than just warm sentiment for you now if something more serious has happened to you? And so let me just share what I heard from a teacher at Reformed Theological Seminary, you know, the seminary that we're partnered with. And he was talking about, you know, these, these topics of, you know, bringing anger toward God and, you know, how do we deal with injustice in the world and so forth. And he shared his story and he said, you know, so I'm, I'm a victim of abuse. When I was a young kid, when I was 14, 15, uh, as a teenager, I was sexually abused by one of my teachers. And I've learned that in light of Christ, that wound doesn't go away, but I learn to carry it differently. And then here's what he said. So he said, I, I shut that drawer for years just because, you know, I didn't want to go there, way too much pain there. But I finally began to do business with God. And as I brought the situation to the Lord, I finally began to feel for the first time. And I realized <laughs> I was I was angry. And, you know, his words, I was mad as hell. And he said, that anger, and if any of you are feeling that in your own story, the story of somebody you know, uh, to a great degree, that anger is right and holy because the things that, have, that he said, the things that happened to me should never have been. And anger toward injustice actually echoes the divine because God gets angry as well. And he said, then as I continued to work on it with God, uh, what I realized is, and how he, kept, how he kept helped me carry it differently, and I'll quote him, he said, <clears throat> I see that God's given me an answer that fits, that every wrong will be made right either in hell or at the cross. In hell or at the cross. And he says, with everything that happened, could I hope for anything more than hell for my abuser? And honestly, I have to answer no. Because if that's where he meets justice, I have no more anger to bestow. But then I thought, what if he comes to faith? 
and he comes to faith before he dies, and so Jesus brings him into heaven. Is there not injustice there? Is there some kind of cruel joke there? And he says, so I took this to Jesus, and I prayed about it, and I knew Jesus smiled and answered, no. There's no injustice there. Because my hands speak of the cross, and they speak of payment for sin, more than enough to cover your sins, and, and also more, more than enough to cover the sins of your abuser as well. That's the baffling good news of the gospel, is there's no one outside the grace and, and mercy of our Lord. And he says, this is the unbelievable wisdom of the cross that all of my abuser's sin is completely paid for by Jesus or himself. So none of it is unaccounted for. Right? Isn't that often the, the frustration with wrongdoings? You always feel like there are strings left to be tied. But he says, none of it is unaccounted for. So I'm learning to give my rage to God because eternity is God's to judge. And then he finishes, you know, as I've experienced Christ sharing in my suffering, I begin to experience what it means to share in Christ's suffering as well. Meaning that I've allowed Christ to come alongside me in my anger and my anger has become diminished and accompanied by compassion. Because while I do wish my story was different, as I've grown in compassion, I also wish the same for my abuser. Like, what did his life have to look like to make him do the things that he did? And then he, he finishes, trusting our anger to God frees us to live by love and hope. Because while our lives today may often involve lament, in Christ, they will end in praise. And, you know, that, that's just an amazing story of Christ being far more than warm sentiment to someone who's been really hurt. And we have a glorious God who somehow executes perfect justice, but also love and mercy towards sinners. And so as we close tonight, um, you know, maybe for you, it's just something as simple as you need to be more real with God. You need to do business with God, with the real stuff that's going on. Maybe you need to pray more for um, victims in the world and pray more for other people rather than just yourself. And with any wrongdoing toward you, whether it was minor or severe, you, you bring that to the Lord and you hear his word that none of it will be unaccounted for. And while your life will involve lament today in Christ, it will always end in praise. Let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, uh, there's some really hard things in the Bible, and I thank you that you give us the benefit of the doubt to read it. And even while some of it may remain a mystery, uh, there are so many hard and incredible things you have to teach us about yourself, God. And so I pray for each person in this room, Lord, that you will help them to uh, take their feelings, the whole spectrum of feelings, to you, and that you will meet them in it. I thank you so much for being a God who invites us to draw near to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.